So you're likely going to lose weight this Thanksgiving, but it will be from your wallet. The lead starts right now. And about face on the bloated price of almost everything, what the White House is now saying about how long we're going to have to pay more. After the shooter sobbed and the judge stole the spotlight, new drama today as the defense wraps up in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Kenosha. Plus, the green American neighborhood where electric bills are six bucks a month and herds of goats mow your lawn, but will neighbors be able to keep developers off their greener pastures? Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our money lead and a change of tone from the White House as it acknowledges that the rising prices most of us are experiencing that they have downplayed will likely last much longer than originally expected. For weeks, President Biden has promised Americans that this inflation is only temporary, but now he's admitting these higher prices are slowing down the economic recovery from our emergent side of the coronavirus pandemic. And top Biden officials are conceding it could be middle to end of next year, 2022, before we begin to see any improvement on prices at the store. Just this week, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released data showing that since last October 2020, gas prices have risen 50 percent, bacon and beef are up 20 percent, eggs, furniture, televisions, all up double digits. The White House is now scrambling to find New solutions convening frequent meetings of top economic experts. But as CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, President Biden is learning a tough lesson about how presidents get blamed for all events under their watch. President Biden visiting Arlington National Cemetery to honor America's veterans. Our veterans represent the best of America. You are the very spine of America. As his White House scrambles behind the scenes to push back on an acute threat to economic recovery and his domestic agenda. Everything from a gallon of gas to a loaf of bread costs more, and it's worrisome. Biden now convening regular internal meetings as inflation hits a three-decade high, a window into the political and policy threat emanating from across-the-board price increases now driving a clear public messaging shift. I'm here to talk about one of the most pressing economic concerns of the American people, and it's real, and that is getting prices down. All part of a frantic effort to address a combination of supply chain bottlenecks and a post-pandemic demand surge, driving a reality largely outside of Biden's control. Today's announcement has the potential to be a game changer. A push to shift Southern California ports to 24-7 operations, easing some pressures. But a record 111 container ships still sitting in wait outside the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, according to data from the Marine Exchange. The latest inflation acceleration stunning Biden's economic team, sources tell CNN, with higher costs across the board, including gas up 49.6 percent, rental cars up 39.1 percent, furniture up 12 percent, and meat, eggs, poultry and fish up 11.9 percent, even after Biden said this in June. The overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. And this in July. These disruptions are temporary. But beyond the economic and political pain, the numbers posing a very real threat to Biden's agenda. With West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a key centrist holdout, long worried about inflation, tweeting, quote, Americans know the inflation tax is real, and D.C. can no longer ignore the economic pain Americans feel every day. It's a warning shot as the White House enters the final negotiations over Biden's $2 trillion economic and climate bill where a single Democratic no vote in the Senate 
would kill the backbone of Biden's domestic agenda, known as Build Back Better. I think that Senator Manchin's concerns make the strongest possible case for Build Back Better. And Jake, one thing I picked up from congressional Democrats over the last 24 hours is concern that the inflation numbers will end up overshadowing the president's big infrastructure win just a week after its passage. The White House officials make clear they're going to do everything they can to make sure that doesn't happen. The president will be hitting the road next week on Tuesday, heading to New Hampshire, on Wednesday, heading to Michigan, obviously two critical swing states, all following a major signing ceremony on Monday, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House. Thanks so much. Biden's headache is a downright migraine for millions of Americans, especially in the heartland where heating bills could double this year. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is in Des Moines, Iowa. Vanessa, what are Iowans telling you about how these rising prices have impacted their daily lives? Well, the number one issue we're hearing from Iowans is this rising energy crisis that they're facing to heat their homes. One gentleman told us that instead of turning the furnace on these last couple nights as it's been chillier here, he's actually decided to just light the fireplace, put more blankets on and more clothes during the day. And rising food costs. We ran into a gentleman at the supermarket who said he was there to just simply peruse the aisles. But then when he realized that the cost of bacon was up 20 percent in the last year, he grabbed it in bulk and he's putting it in the freezer to save it for later and save a couple cents on the dollar. Here is how he described these rising energy, these rising costs across the board. We're all uh, hardworking middle class folks, so, you know, we can't go too far out of our means to make ends meet, but, you know, you still got to eat, you still got to live. Now, if you can see just behind me, Jake, gas over $3 a gallon here in Des Moines, Iowa. That's up more than a dollar since last year. We spoke to a gentleman who was gas station price hopping. He went to one gas station and said that he saw that it was $3.40 a gallon, decided that was too much, moved on to another gas station where he says it was about $3 a gallon. So he felt much more comfortable paying that. But it just shows how these rising prices are really affecting a Americans in their everyday lives and how they have to be much more thoughtful about how and where they spend their money. Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkevich, thank you uh, so much. Let's discuss this with CNN Global Economic Analyst and Associate Editor for the Financial Times, Rana Farrar and Sungman Kim, White House reporter for the Washington Post and the pride of Iowa, I might, I might <laughs> add. Uh, Rana, let me start with you. Uh, Treasury <laughs> Secretary uh, Janet Yellen has pointed to the middle to end of 2022 as when inflation rates may improve. Do you really think it it might take that long in mid to late next year before Americans start to see some relief in these prices? I, I think it's possible, but you have to remember, we have come out of a really unusual period. This is not a normal bout of inflation. I mean, we had a global pandemic. Everything stopped and then it had to ramp back up. So it's going to take time to work out those dislocations. But I think what's interesting is there's a lot of factors in play. On the one hand, you know, you've got labor shortages, you've got supply chain things, those will ease out. On the other hand, you've got low interest rates still pushing up housing prices, but you also have technology allowing people to work in many other places. That's disinflationary. So there's a lot in play, and I don't think anybody has a sense yet of when the exact um, cutoff date is going to be for inflation. I don't think we're headed back to a decade of it, though, like the 70s. Right. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, much higher in the 70s. But still, people are, are hurting. Why do you think, Sungman, why, why do you think it took this long for President Biden to, to pivot away from this idea 
He kept on trying to reassure people it's only going to be quick. It's temporary. It's temporary. Now they're understanding it, it, it could last longer than they thought. Why? Did they not realize how bad it was? I think it really hit them in a way that they didn't expect. Like sources told Phil and sources told us at The Washington Post that the White House was kind of caught off by the report yesterday showing the highest rate of inflation in, in three decades. 6.2 percent. Right, right, yeah. right. So that's why you saw the really distinctly different uh language that from President Biden yesterday where he told consumers, hey, bread is more expensive. Gas is more expensive. I hear you. It sucks. We're going to try to do something about it. And that was a very deliberate, very addressing it head on, that this is something that consumers are feeling right now and that Biden and the White House has to show uh, the, the public that they are doing something about it or trying to. And, and Rana, we know the White House is convening these meetings with economic advisors. Some of these issues, of course, stem from global supply chain problems. Uh, we've seen these massive backups at California ports, if we could show that, that video. Uh, even after Biden directed the ports to operate 24-7, he was saying that it was only going to take 90 days, but the guy in charge of the port told us it's going to take until 2022. What, can, what else can the White House realistically do to make a difference, not just at the, at the ports, but uh, on inflation? Well, I do think longer term that the infrastructure bill is going to help. You know, in the short term, it can cause some inflationary pressures to have more building. But longer term, think about it, more port capacity, better roads, better transportation, better training for workers to help bridge some of those labor shortages. So that's one thing. But, you know, businesses are taking action, too. The biggest companies, Amazon, Walmart, Target, they're buying their own containers. They're using artificial intelligence to to have automated boats shipping things. So, again, technology could prove to be a little bit of an inflation dampener. And so, I mean, some Democrats uh, point to th- these economic strains as, as one of the reasons uh, why Terry McAuliffe lost the governor's race, the right. Democrat, uh, last week in Virginia, not to mention Phil Murphy, the incumbent right. Democratic governor in New Jersey, almost losing. It came, he came uh, a lot closer to losing than anyone thought. What kind of impact might this have on the midterm elections in 2022, which traditionally the party out of power uh, usually has a good year? They could be bolstered even more. Right, right. And you're seeing Republicans really go on the attack over these rising prices, over rising gas prices to make their case that the party in power is not doing the job. So what Democrats can do now is, for for example, push their agenda that they say will help ease these prices, will help voters that to uh, will help show voters that Democrats are delivering for the American people. But Democrats are facing a tough midterm election already. Obviously, historically, the party, uh, the president's party suffers usually in his first midterms. You've got a lot of redistricting that Republicans alone may use to gain uh, power in the House of Representatives. And if voters are still feeling this way about the economy, it's going to be a very tough midterm elections for the Democratic Party. So what they're trying to do now Pass the, or uh, pass the bill, bill Back Better agenda and a host of other things. They hope that'll do the trick next year. All right, Sungman Kim, Rana Ferrar, thanks for both of you, uh, to both of you for being here. Breaking news just moments ago, a major ruling in Donald Trump's fight to keep his secret documents secret. Also had no sobs, but plenty of courtroom drama in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial today. Then, fire pits filled with everything from military vehicles to human waste, now at the center of a White House effort on this Veterans Day. Why some say it is not nearly enough, that's coming up. This is CNN Breaking News. We have some breaking news for you now. A federal court of appeals has just handed a temporary victory to former President Trump in his effort to keep documents from his presidency shielded from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, break down exactly what this means. 
So, Jake, this panel of three judges has granted former President Trump's request to delay the handoff of some records from his time in the White House related to January 6th to the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection. Now, the National Archives inherited Trump's records once he left office, and they were scheduled to hand off some of these documents to the House Select Committee by tomorrow at 6 p.m., but former President Trump and his lawyers, they asked this court of appeals to, to delay that handoff while they appeal a lower court decision that ordered that as a former president, he does not have the power to keep secret records that the current president wants released. So this is a really interesting case. It raises some novel questions about presidential privilege. And in this order, we've learned that oral arguments on this appeal are scheduled for November 30th. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much with that breaking news. Turning out of the National League one day after tearful testimony in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the judge scolding the prosecution, the defense followed that up with a use-of-force expert who analyzed video of shootings in August 2020. A police officer who collected evidence the next day also testified, along with a freelance commentator who captured one shooting on video. Rittenhouse was 17 years old when he took guns and ammo to protests in the immediate aftermath of the police shooting of Jacob Blake. Rittenhouse testified he was trying to protect a nearby car dealership. He now faces homicide charges and the killings of two men and attempted homicide for shooting a third man who survived. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where this trial is happening. And Omar, questions of one of the witnesses' alleged perceived bias was one of the focal points of the day. Yeah, Jake, uh, from the outside of this trial, politics have been nearly unavoidable. But on the inside of the trial, the judge has really done his best to keep all of that out of this. Today, it's t though, it's sort of crept out of the backdrop of things in the form of the defense's 10th witness, as you mentioned, a self-described freelance commentator who was on the streets of Kenosha that night. Take a listen to this exchange. Have you ever posted anything on social media? Yes. In support of Kyle Rittenhouse? One could argue yes. Your videos that you have captured of these incidents that you call riots, they're very uh, slanted against the people who are rioting. You characterize them as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, rioters, correct? Because they are rioting in the footage, yes, absolutely. Now, the prosecution tried to keep pushing further, but the judge emphasized this was not going to be a political trial. That witness was brought forward in the first place by the defense to sort of contrast between Joseph Rosenbaum, the first of the two people killed back in August 2020 by Rittenhouse. He testified that he was acting very aggressively and charged Rittenhouse that night compared with Kyle Rittenhouse, who he testified was acting very peacefully and even de-escalating situations over the course of that night. Now, moving forward, or I should say, if yesterday was the most dramatic day of testimony, today began as the most technical day of testimony as the first witness that was brought up meticulously went through the timeline of what happened that night. And we learned that it happened very quickly from the first of the four shots that went, to, that went into Joseph Rosenbaum to the last that went into the arm of Gage Grosskreutz. It took about a minute and 20 seconds for all of this. We are on the verge of the defense resting its case right now. Uh, we're watching to see when that would wrap up. The prosecution indicated they'll have a brief rebuttal, but we are in the final stages of this before it eventually lies in the hands of the jury to make the decision. All right, Omar Jimenez in Kenosha, Wisconsin, thank you so much. We are also following the trial 
of three white men charged with killing black unarmed jogger Ahmad Arbery in February 2020. Today, jurors in Brunswick, Georgia, saw home surveillance videos showing Arbery walking around an empty construction site. The owner of that site made multiple calls to 911, reporting intruders. CNN's Martin Savage is outside the courthouse. Martin, uh, what did we learn today? Yeah, this was a key witness. Larry English is the owner of the home under construction. That's the way it's described. And that is the home that appears to have been the source of so much tension and concern within that community in the lead up to the chase and the eventual killing of Ahmad Arbery. What we know is that Larry English says he put surveillance cameras up there because he was concerned. He knew that a lot of people come and go on a construction site and he was worried about liability. It did capture on a number of occasions an African-American male on the property at night, but Larry English time and time and time again when pressed by the prosecution said that he never saw that man take anything or do anything on that property. Yet it was Ahmad's Arbery's presence leaving that property on February 23rd, 2020 that triggered the whole chain of events that led to these three defendants now on trial for his murder. One of the uh, biggest debates of the day came actually after or outside of the jury's presence and it's when the defense attorney for Larry Goff jumped up and complained about Reverend Al Sharpton having been in the courtroom the day before in the public area. Listen to this. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence a jury in this case. The judge basically said it's public space. Anyone can come in here as long as they fit the decorum of the court, Jake. That's quite a quite a statement in a, a Georgia trial in 2021. Martin Savage, yeah. thank you so much. We Appreciate don't need any it. more black pastors. Yeah, exactly. Learning to live with it. The next phase of COVID may be here already. What that could mean for you, for your kids and for masking. Stay with us. In our health lead today, the future of the coronavirus in the United States is here, and it looks like we're going to have to learn to live with it. Cases and hospitalizations have leveled off in recent weeks, and the CDC forecast does not show it changing anytime soon. But don't say the pandemic is over, because it is not. Former coronavirus senior advisor to President Biden, Andy Slavitt, took his frustration over this issue to Twitter, writing, quote, One too many smart people has told me or said on TV this week that the pandemic is over. It is still here. There are still 1,200 people dying every day. That's a rate of 440,000 deaths a year. Joining us now to discuss CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay Slavitt went on to say, quote, the signs people look at aren't really signs. To be clear, when cases dip, it's not over. When boosters come, it's not over. When kids are vaccinated, it's not over. When therapies are approved, it's not over. Okay, point made, point taken. But on Sunday, the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, said, quote, we're close to the end of the pandemic phase of this virus. So how do you reconcile this? Well, I think we've known uh, basically since pretty close to the beginning, given the contagiousness of this virus, and that was even pre-Delta, that this was likely a virus that was here to stay. It, It was just, it was that contagious. And, you know, some of the the remnants of the 1918 flu virus, some of the great descendants of that virus still circulate today. 
I think what uh, Gottlieb was saying, the rest of his quote from Sunday was, we're, ent- we're maybe leaving the pandemic phase of this, but entering the endemic phase of this, which is basically saying, okay, now we're in this dance. That's going to be the dance between humans and, and, and coronavirus on this planet. I think the, the, the real question I think that they're both sort of getting at here is what are we willing to tolerate? What are we willing to tolerate as a country when it comes to this, this, uh, this particular virus? Right now, there's you know, still 75,000 or so people being diagnosed. There's 50,000 people in the hospital and close to 1,200 people dying uh, every day. That's obviously too many. So at what point do we say, okay, we've now got control over this? Some people like a number. Dr. Fauci has used the number fewer than 10,000 cases per day. It might mean that we have control over it. It's not gone, but we feel like it's in control. And I think the bigger thing, just as someone who's in the hospitals quite a bit, is when hospitals don't feel like they're still overwhelmed by this, I think that that's, that's probably going to be a big marker, Jake, and, and, and we're not there yet. The difference between right now on the screen, as you see, this, this point this year compared to last year, uh, is that things do look better. Uh, and the numbers are going in the right direction as opposed to this time last year where everything was going in the wrong direction. The White House says that almost one million children under the age of 12 have gotten vaccinated since the smaller Pfizer dose was approved. That's huge. But there are about 27 million additional children who are eligible in order to have safe holiday gatherings or at least the safest holiday gatherings one can have. How soon should parents get their kids under 12 the first shot? Well, what I would say, there's no reason to wait. Uh, You know, I mean, you got to remember, it takes about five weeks because you have to wait three weeks for the second shot, and then it's two weeks after that before you're really considered, uh, you know, the most protected. And so, you know, you, you can do the math on that, but if it's, this is for the holidays you're talking about, you'd have to tack on five weeks to whenever you start this whole process. Got to remember, again, you know, as, as we go into the cooler and drier months, there's probably going to be more viral spread. So uh, the longer you wait, if you're worried about your kids potentially contracting COVID, uh, the, the higher risk they have, the more days of risk they have. So, so uh, there, there's no reason to wait. But also, you know, for a lot of families, I think they're going to be visiting with uh, elderly family members, maybe vulnerable family members, maybe for the first time in some time, probably indoors, uh, probably without masks on. So, you know, the, the vaccine provides another layer of protection. If I might say, Jake, just in our own family, we've also been uh, ordering antigen tests to have in the home so that we can quickly test people. Even if they've been vaccinated, there are situations where people might still spread the virus. So testing on top of vaccination, uh, as we go into holiday parties and things like that, I think offers another layer of protection. Miami-Dade County Schools in Florida, they're making masks optional starting Friday. Uh, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf uh, plans on lifting the K-12 mask mandate in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania by January. New York City's mayor-elect Eric Adams says he hopes to lift it by the end of the year. Considering that not all kids 5 to 11 are vaccinated yet, in fact, just a minority of them are, is this a good idea? Do you think this is premature? I, I think it may be. I mean, you know, this is not magic. I mean, let's, let's show the map of what's going on in the country right now uh, with regard to, to COVID spread. I mean, I realize that people want to, to be optimistic. I do as well. And the numbers, like I said, ha- are largely heading in the right direction. But think of that was a weather map, Jake. We're still getting drenched. In, in coronavirus. There's still a lot of it out there. And masks may offer some protection in terms of actually decreasing the spread. So we're, we're probably not there yet. I think, I think we've also seen, Jake, with the stutter stepping uh, about masks, is if you do this and then you have to re-implement mask policy, each time you do that, it gets harder. 
So you've got to be very clear on if you're going to if you're going to lift these mask uh, you know requirements, uh, what the criteria are, why you're doing it. Like I said, Dr. Fauci put a number on it for the country, 10,000 cases per day for the country. What does that translate to for your community? It's great the vaccination status is up, but I think you have to look at that map almost like you look at the weather and determine: Do you need your umbrella? <laughs> do you need your mask? All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. Goats for lawnmowers, electric bills only six bucks a month. This neighborhood could be a model for the rest of the world, but now the homeowners are gassing up for a fight. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, with just one day to go at the International Climate Summit in Scotland, China, India, and 20 other countries are pushing to cut out key parts of what is supposed to be a mutual agreement for action on climate change. More proof, not that we really need it, that going green and staying green is far easier said than done, especially when money is at stake, which brings us to our national lead today. CNN's Bill Weir visited a neighborhood that was an eco-friendly paradise until a new developer moved in. While they fuss and fight in Glasgow over the path to a carbon-neutral world, this gentleman knows how hard you have to fight just to build a net zero neighborhood. I pay about $6 every month for electricity. Darlon Chang is an energy pioneer battling to settle the greenest community in America called GEOS. Conceived as a clean energy utopia in the Denver suburb of Arvada, original plans called for nearly 300 homes, all powered, heated, and cooled only by what radiates down from the sun and up from the earth. On a day when it's like 10 degrees outside and you have the windows open uh, by 11 o'clock or so, you have close to 70 degrees in here. It's very toasty in here. Yeah. Look at this. Our homes are offset. This is south. It's all the brainchild of an Austrian engineer named Norbert Klebel, who first staggered the plots in a checkerboard so that each tightly constructed home, free of drafts and leaks, would get maximum free heat from the sun. We harvest the Colorado sun in the wintertime. When the sun is low down there, it floats in here and heats up the entire house. This means you need fewer solar panels to power the house and your cars and eight hours of battery backup. Since gas stoves can create the same amount of indoor pollution as living with a chain smoker, and since natural gas is mostly made of planet-cooking methane, rule one of GEOS would be no gas, all electric. So this here is the uh, geothermal unit. Using liquid to bring up energy from the Earth's hot core, this machine heats and cools the house with virtually no pollution. Uh, if you go down to the core of the Earth, it's as hot there as it is on the surface of the sun. And it's closer, it's right there. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it's, yes. It's it, always on. Darlan believes geothermal will be the energy of the future. And he should know. He spent over 15 years as an alternative fuel engineer at ExxonMobil. I saw no reason why we weren't using the drilling technologies we were using at ExxonMobil to, to drill for hot rocks rather than drill for oil and gas. But the company wasn't moving away from fossil fuels fast enough for his sense of urgency. And he says when hurricanes knocked power from his Houston home and his homeowners association banned solar panels, he quit, packed, and moved to the greener pastures of Geos. The 28 completed homes with goats instead of lawnmowers felt like proof of a better way. But then Norbert was forced to sell the rest of Geos 
in a divorce settlement. And despite their fierce objections, the new developer is now installing gas lines for the next phase of homes. The story of my neighborhood being a failed experiment in building without gas pipelines is not only false, but it also endangers the transition away from methane gas needed this decade to prevent runaway climate change. Since the Arvada City Council pledged to encourage more renewable energy a decade ago, Darlan put on his no-gas-hole shirt and, along with neighbors, asked for their intervention. You've got homes that need to be converted that already exist. But the job here with the next phase of GEOS has already been done for you. But so far, officials refuse to help GEOS stay gas-free. It's a lesson that while over 100 nations led by the U.S. are pledging to drastically reduce methane emissions, all building codes are local. And small towns worry that forcing a clean transition will bring lawsuits from big oil and gas and their favorite lawmakers. Greg Abbott of Texas among those threatening to sue any towns that try to ban gas in new construction. Denver's actually going that way in a couple years, uh, Jake. But the residents tell me their best hope might just be the free market. If enough like-minded home buyers show up, the developer might follow that money. Hmm. Bill Weir, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Medical waste, uniforms, nuclear material, human feces all thrown in a hole and set on fire with jet fuel. That's a burn pit. Thousands of American veterans were exposed to them. Now the Biden administration is taking action. But is it enough action? We're going to ask a veteran who worked on the pit. Stay with us. In our buried lead, that's what we call stories we feel are not getting enough attention. Today marks the first Veterans Day since President Biden ended the U.S. involvement in the war in Afghanistan. And this morning... The White House announced new plans to help some veterans who have potentially been exposed to burn pits and other hazardous materials while serving in the armed forces and are suffering as a result. Throughout Iraq and Afghanistan, burn pits were used 24-7 to incinerate all sorts of waste. Food, old uniforms, medical waste, ammunition, trucks, nuclear waste, human feces, the kinds of pits that were not allowed to be constructed in the United States. Now, Biden... Has, has President Biden has previously speculated that burn pits may have been responsible for his late son Bo's brain cancer, although he has noted that he can't prove it yet. Right now, the VA only recognizes some illnesses associated with burn pits, making benefits that much harder for veterans to attain. Brain cancer, we should note, is not among them. Today's action only expanded the list to include some respiratory cancers and constrictive bronchiolitis. Let's discuss with Isaiah James. He's an Army veteran. He served twice in Iraq, once in Afghanistan. He's now a senior policy advisor for the Black Veterans Project and has talked quite a bit about burn pits. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, sir. According to the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, 86% of post-9-11 veterans who served in Iraq or Afghanistan say they were exposed to burn pits. You were one of those service members. In fact, you worked on a burn pit. Explain to our audience what that was like and, and what you're experiencing now. Uh, well, what it's like is you don't really understand what it's like. You're just doing what you're told. You're following orders. You're just burning everything. It's hot. It's it's dusty. It's it's disgusting. You know, my first deployment, we we had to burn human feces, and and my third deployment in Afghanistan, we lived in the mountains, and everything was dirty, and we just burned everything. Uh, what I'm dealing with now are the repercussions and the ramifications of those actions. You know, I have respiratory issues. 
I have lung scarring. I am, I'm on breathing treatments every single day just to be able to breathe. And I'm not an aberration. I'm millions of veterans across this country. So John Stewart, who's very active uh, on this issue, he has a new podcast where he interviews you and he interviews your late friend, Staff Sergeant Wesley Black, a fellow burn pit victim and activist. Uh, he had colon cancer. He died just after the interview. I want to play a little bit of, of, about what Staff Sergeant Black said. I first started arguing about burn pit legislation, thinking that I wasn't going to make a difference. You know, I was just one single voice that right. how much can a difference can one voice make? Right. And as I've continued down this path, now I'm thinking more of what what legacy I'm leaving behind for my son. Mm-hmm. And what my son is going to think of me in 10, 12, 15, 25 years. I hope in some small way that my choosing to stand up for what is right will forever last in his mind of, you know, my dad was a good person. And we should note today's move, and look, it's a step in the right direction. They expanded the list of diseases, but it would not have helped Staff Sergeant Black. It does not cover colon cancer. What do you think of today's move? Today's move, like you said, was a step in the right direction, but quite frankly, Jake, it's a it's a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. It's, it's, it's a placation move. There are some 40 to 50 different cancers and diseases linked to these same chemicals that our soldiers are, you know, were exposed to during toxic burn pits. And I don't understand why, for the life of me, there's the hemming and hawing to try to get these things as presumptive you know, diseases. We need an actual comprehensive bill that is going to take care of veterans. We see this after every single war with every generation. I applaud the Biden administration for taking the step in the right direction, but we need big, bold, transformational leadership on this issue. And this, this trash, this burn piss, it's been burning for 20 years. If you're a service member experiencing symptoms such as respiratory cancer, what happens now when you go to the VA? Well, right now, the VA, first of all, they should be ashamed of themselves. Second of all, it's an adversarial relationship. The VA is basically victim blaming. They tell you, the service member, Prove to me that you got this cancer from the burn pit instead of let me treat this cancer and let me go back on the back end and audit it. We, we need a VA that's going to actually take the charge that Lincoln set forth to care for him and her who have borne the brunts of battle. So right now it's, it's basically you're trying to pull crocodile teeth to get the VA to even recognize you have these diseases from the burn pits. On top of all this, on this Veterans Day, we should acknowledge veterans continue to struggle with mental health concerns, quite understandably. But between your last two deployments, you were hospitalized in Germany for post-traumatic stress. Is the government doing enough to address mental health issues when it comes to veterans? Absolutely not. The government in this issue, if, the, if this was a movie, the government would be the villain. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year on the weapons and the mechanisms of war. Yet we just forget the war fighters when they come home. 22 veterans a day are killing themselves. That is an absolute travesty in the richest nation on earth. The government, again, needs to have skin in the game. It's very easy for politicians to sit back. The ones who don't have to go, they're not from poor neighborhoods like I was, and, they, and then we're, they use us as cannon fodder and, and political grandstanding to say they support the troops. Well, the troops are telling you we need help. 
We don't want to be treated better than everybody. We don't want to be treated worse. We just want what you promised us. We went in your name. You told us if we fought, you would take care of us. And now that bill has come due. With the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, there's been a renewed mental health crisis within the veteran community. Um, now that it's been a few months, what is your takeaway from how the U.S. pulled up troops out of Afghanistan? There's never an easy way to end a 20-year conflict. I think we ended it 19 years too late. You know, after I was in Afghanistan, quite frankly, when we got Osama bin Laden. I was 60 miles away from the Pakistan border. I was in Maywand, Afghanistan. And I turned to my lieutenant and I asked him, I was like, sir, why are we still here if we got him? You know, we, we, there's never a right way to end a war, but we had to end it. It was always going to be messy. It was always going to be bloody. You know, and quite frankly, those who have never been there and served, their opinions aren't really, you know, warranted. I let the generals who are there on the ground tell me what we need to do, but we had to get out. We, we cannot keep falling for this same thing of trying to nation build around the world. It never ends well, as we can see. Isaiah James, you honor us by being here on Veterans Day. Thank you so much for, for coming. Thank you so much for all the sacrifices you have made for the rest of us. And keep, keep up the fight. We're going to keep interviewing you and bringing this to the, uh, the American people. Thank you so, so much for having me and for using your platform to elevate this issue. All right. Well, tell Rosie Torres at Burn Pit 360 we say hi. Absolutely. Moments ago, the defense officially resting in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, but not before more drama erupted. That's next. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a federal appeals court just ruled in a temporary win for Donald Trump as he escalates his legal fight to stop the release of his secret White House records. Plus, desperate Afghans still trying to escape the country, being preyed on by folks demanding that they pay up big time to get out. And leading this hour, breaking news out of Kenosha, Wisconsin, the defense rests in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse after new witnesses and a new confrontation between the judge and prosecutors following the 18-year-old testifying in his own defense yesterday. Rittenhouse is facing homicide charges for shooting and killing two people. The sole survivor of the shooting, who was severely wounded, said earlier today that he thought Rittenhouse appeared to, quote, be more upset that he was caught and less upset about what he had done, unquote. CNN's Kyung La starts off our coverage today from the courthouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The defense lawyers for Kyle Rittenhouse rested their case, ending as they did through much of the trial, leaning on video from that night. The first victim shot by Rittenhouse, Joseph Rosenbaum, seen here in the red T-shirt. Minutes later, he would collide with Rittenhouse, the first man shot. This video was taken by defense witness Drew Hernandez, who described Rosenbaum this way. Rosenbaum was charging Kyle Rittenhouse from behind. Hear it and saw it in real time. And Rosenbaum is lunging towards him very clearly and Kyle fires. The defense's goal by showing what led up to the shootings is to boost Rittenhouse's self-defense claims that the then 17-year-old was cornered and feared for his life. He's pleaded not guilty. (laughs) A moment his lawyers hope humanized the defendant who faces a potential life sentence. But the third man shot by Rittenhouse, Gage Grosskreutz, whose bicep was blown off by Rittenhouse's bullet, says he didn't see an emotional man on the stand. To me, it seemed like a, a child who had just gotten caught doing something that he wasn't supposed to. More upset that he was caught and less upset about what he had done and what he had taken and 
the numerous lives that he affected through his actions that night. A night of multiple viewpoints and cameras parsed frame by frame in the final days of the trial. The defense's use of force expert testified that there was a minute between the time Rosenbaum and the second man, Anthony Huber, were shot. About a minute passes between the fourth shot to Joseph Rosenbaum and that incident where you're pinpointing someone coming up behind the defendant swinging at his head. That's fair to say. Hernandez was just one of the many capturing the events on the Kenosha Street. He's an Arizona-based commentator who works for far-right wing outlet Real America Voice and posts frequently on social media. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. Hernandez testified he was in Kenosha to track Antifa and BLM when the shootings happened. Have you ever posted anything on social media? Yes. In support of Kyle Rittenhouse? One could argue yes. The testimony by the right-wing commentator is a reminder that this trial has been and continues to be a flashpoint for a battle that goes beyond Kenosha. Now, the rebuttal witness is done. It appears the prosecution is is done with rebuttal at this stage, Jake. But uh, I want to tell you, the judge right now is talking with the attorneys to talk about how all of this is going to wrap up. The timing of this is a little unclear right now, but it does appear that we are in the final hours of all of this, the final days of all of this. Jake? All right. Kung Lan, Kenosha, Wisconsin for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Stacey Schneider, a criminal defense attorney. Renato Mariotti is a former federal prosecutor. Uh, Renato, let me start with you. Um, the commentator who testified today repeatedly referred to people in the crowd as Antifa and Black Lives Matter rioters. Um, the judge allowed that, but is not allowing lawyers to refer to the two men who were killed as, quote, victims. Explain that to our audience, uh, because I think some people think that there might be a, a double standard uh, afoot here. W- what do you say? I do think it's it's a judgment call by this particular judge. I know that this judge has a practice of not allowing uh, the word victim to be used in any criminal trial, which is unusual. I will say that it has appeared to me that the judge has become convinced over the course of this trial that the prosecution's case is weak. And I think he is been increasingly issuing rulings that are favorable to the defense. And part of the reason may be that he does not want a verdict uh, that he might have to feel compelled to overturn later. And sometimes judges uh, do that if they feel like it's the uh, verdict is going in the wrong direction. Stacy, in one exchange, the judge stopped prosecutors from asking uh, this freelance conservative commentator about his current employer, uh, which is a conservative outlet. Take a listen. Does Real America's Voice have any sort of um, political uh, bias or agenda or anything like that? What is the relevance? It goes to the bias of the witness, Your Honor. This is not a political trial, and um, I I don't know how you would isolate um, a person's particular politics. What do you make of that ruling? I think the judge should have given the prosecution more leeway to get into the background of the witness. Although it's an eyewitness, a factual witness, what people do for a living, where they come from, what their beliefs are, it's all important to what people are delivering in the courtroom as far as their testimony goes. And if there was any possibility whatsoever that this particular eyewitness had a bias and chose to come into court and interpret what he saw on a bias, I think that 
any side exploring a witness should have the opportunity to do that. I think the judge went too far in limiting it. It would not have been harmful. It wouldn't have slowed down the trial. It wouldn't have gotten into areas that were impermissible. It was something that is brought out. It is something that is brought out in almost every witness. What do you do for a living? What's your background? What if, what what's your position on this? It was relevant in this case because there were there were social media postings. So I think the judge went too far. And Renata, the judge in this case um, has a documented past of uh, allegations of controversial treatment towards people in his courtroom, we should point out. In 1987, the Chicago Tribune wrote that he was, quote, requiring AIDS tests for convicted prostitutes. Um, just this year, the Kenosha News newspaper reported an appeals court overturned what it had called a public shaming of a woman convicted of retail theft as she went into another store. The judge had ordered her to, quote, notify management at the service desk that she is on supervision for retail theft. Um, aside from missteps by the prosecution uh, and potentially just a weak case by the prosecution, might the judge's actions here factor into the outcome of this case? I think it's fair to say that the judge has a reputation uh, for, for, for being, uh, for, for being a, uh, uh, an aggressive judge in the courtroom and a difficult judge in the courtroom. As certainly there's been some decisions he's made that are questionable. I think it's fair to call into question the judge's rulings here. I will say as, a, as an experienced criminal uh, trial lawyer that when the prosecution's case starts going south, I mean, they've made a lot of missteps here. Uh, judges tend to try to bend over backwards to make sure that the defense has a fair trial. And I think that's part of what's going on. And Stacey, I want to play a key moment. Tuesday, when the defense questioned the third man who was shot by Rittenhouse, who survived, uh, Gage Grosskreutz. Take, take a look. When you were standing three to five feet from him with your arms up in the air, he never fired, right? Correct. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct. So he was asked about that testimony from Tuesday in an interview today, and he had a clarification. Take a listen. My arm was being vaporized as uh, I was allegedly pointing my weapon at the defendant. Uh, it's completely inconsistent. Uh, with the physiology of my wound that he would have shot me while my weapon was pointed at his head. So you're saying that you actually did, you weren't pointing your gun at him. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely what I'm saying, yes. So that's what he tells Good Morning America, but the jury heard him say that Rittenhouse fired after he had raised his weapon. Um, the jury's not going to hear his denial of his previous te previous testimony, right? I mean, that's that's really significant that that has come out, and that's a very very important point with respect to this witness because the testimony was at trial that um, he was coming toward Rittenhouse with a, a pointed gun, and although he had testified at trial, well, I wasn't intending to use it. That's not relevant. What's relevant is what is in the in the mind of Rittenhouse. Yeah. Is he justified in using deadly force against somebody who's coming after him with a gun? It's a very important point for the jury to ponder. And um, now having heard that there's another story that completely would 
factor into a jury's decision about whether or not this was a justifi justifiable killing in self-defense or it was not. So it's that's really a, a stunning admission or change of testimony uh, or change of position. Yeah. Stacey, Renato, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the new ruling just in in the battle over releasing Trump records to the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Plus, we're live on the ground as thousands of people are trapped and stranded in freezing temperatures caught in the middle of a geopolitical dispute. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you in our politics lead. A temporary victory for former President Donald Trump in the last hour. A federal appeals court granted Trump's request to at least pause the release of key White House records to the House Select Committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection. That means more than 700 documents, call logs, speech drafts, handwritten memos, are not going to Congress tomorrow, as originally expected. Let's get right to CNN's Evan Perez. So, Evan, what happens now? Well, Jake, uh, this uh, panel of judges gave, uh, gave the, the Trump uh, team even more time than they had asked for. Uh, right now, they, they have outlined a schedule that takes us uh, to oral argument in, on November 30th which means uh, we may not see a decision uh, from this, uh, this panel of judges uh, until early December. And uh, this is a, a group, uh, three judges, uh, two appointed by President Obama, one appointed by uh, President Biden. And I'll read you just a part of what they said. Uh, they say the purpose of this administrative injunction is to protect the court's jurisdiction to address appellants' uh, claims of executive privilege and should not be construed in any way as a ruling on the merits. Uh, look, this is a, 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 a group of judges that are probably going to take a very skeptical view of what uh, President Trump, the former President Trump, is arguing. But he at least has a lot of time. And if you know the, the Democrats uh, on this uh, committee, in the January 6th committee, they were hoping for a very expedited schedule. They know that they want to see these documents. It's key, these documents, it's key to their investigation, Jake. Yeah, well, they have until the Republicans take over the House. Um, right. I want to ask you, Evan, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, he's, he's made it very clear he has no intentions of cooper cooperating with the committee until the courts rule that he has to do so. So what's going to happen with that? Well, Meadows is saying, his lawyers are saying, Jake, that they want to wait until the courts rule on whether the former president does indeed have executive privilege, the ability to block not only documents, but also the testimony, despite the fact that President Biden, the current president, uh, has said that he is waiving it because of the extraordinary nature of what happened on January 6th. And one of the curious parts of Meadows' argument, Jake, is that uh, the, the norms of the presidency are being violated by uh, President Biden because he's not protecting uh, somebody as close to the former president as a chief of staff. Of course, uh, it's very I ironic to hear the word norms coming <laughs> from, from Meadows and some of the, the previous administration. Uh, Meadows is one of the people who was pushing for the Justice Department to say that they were investigating uh, voter fraud and, and things like this uh, Italian satellite uh, conspiracy theory. So uh, it's very interesting claim from, uh, from Mark Meadows. Yep, indeed. Evan Perez, thank you so much. Let's discuss... Um, so, Zolan, so it, obviously Trump wants to run out the clock. It is expected that Republicans could win the House uh, in a year. Uh, that would be the historical norm anyway, just because the Democrats are in the White House. Republicans yeah. would, would take the House. Um, and, the, and it's such a narrow majority as it is. Um, 
And the, these three judges, all appointed by Democrats, just gave them a little help. A little bit more time. And this actually goes back to the strategy that the former president and his team used, even going back to 2019, right, when the impeachment proceedings are going on and they're trying to also prevent his then White House counsel from uh, appearing before Congress. The pace of these decisions is going to be key in whether or not all of these documents, all of this information that the Congressional Committee is looking for actually gets to see them at this point. Because as you said, the former president's strategy here and his team's strategy is going to be to get this thing stuck in litigation for as long as you possibly can until the clock runs out. The clock running out being, as you just noted, Jake, midterm elections, right? Because you can assume that after the midterm elections and if Republicans were to take over uh, and, and reclaim a majority, that that might be the end of the line for the January 6th committee at that point. So the pace of this is going to be really fascinating. But you can also look before this decision today, I believe it only took about 23 days for a ruling on this case as well. Now that's a, a faster pace than 2019 when it was taking months at a time. And, and Aisha, Attorney General Merrick Garland still has not uh, and the and the U.S. attorney who was just named for the District of Columbia uh, still have not come forward and said what they're going to do yeah. about uh, Steve Bannon being held in criminal contempt of Congress for not complying. And these, it seems like all these other witnesses are just waiting to see what happens there, whether or not there's going to be uh, any sort of prosecution. And it's, it's been a really long time before since anyone has faced any like actual criminal repercussions for not complying with a congressional subpoena. And so right now, this Justice Department, Department is going to have to decide what it wants to do with people who are just not willing to comply. You know, you talked about norms. In the past, um, people generally would try to work something out. Um, with Congress. They wouldn't just say no blatantly. But that hasn't been the case with this uh, with the prior administration. And it worked really well for them. And so they're going to keep it up until they face some actual repercussions. And Ramesh, uh, obviously, uh, Donald Trump has been attacking Liz Cheney, the conservative Republican from Wyoming, uh, who has been standing up against the big lie. And she's on this committee. Um, But take a listen to what she said Uh, about what she is hearing from fellow Republicans about her activities on this committee. Privately and behind the scenes, um, there are many, many Republicans who say, thank you for what you're doing. Uh, We wish we could be more public. Uh, People who understand that that what the former president is saying is dangerous, is not true. What do you think? Well, uh, I've heard similar things from Republicans for about five years. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to Donald Trump, it would be nice if some of them uh, were to, to stand up and, and speak in public, but, uh, but courage seems to be in pretty short supply. Cheney was also asked if she's not ruling out a 2024 bid. She replied, I think it's going to be a very important year. What do you make of that? Do you think, I know you're not a Republican, but do you, do you think that there is a, a lane for, for Liz Cheney uh, in presidential politics? I do. I think that there are a lot of Republicans that feel like they don't have a home right now. And so they are looking for some place to go. I'm not sure Liz Cheney is going to be the home that they might want to veer towards. But I think there's an opportunity in the Republican Party to really decide who they are going to be. And if they have a candidate that can draw away from this Trump idol that they have right now and really be competitive with those moderate voters that we saw a week ago in Virginia were not wanting to go with Biden or whoever's going to be on the ticket for the Democrats in 2024. Um, Cheney may be an option. There may be a whole list of other ones as yeah, well. I just, I just think that if one of your top three attributes is being anti-Trump, that 
there's not going to be an audience mm-hmm. Republican. Not, not in the Republican yeah. primary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there yeah. may be a lot of voters, but some of those voters have left the Republican Party and they're not going to be voting in a Republican primary. Well, I mean, but to her point, she's saying that people are saying it behind closed doors. And when you go into your ballot box, you don't know who you're going to vote for. So there could I understand what you're saying, like an anti-Trump ticket is not probably the most popular, but there seems to be a lot of folks who didn't vote for Trump in 2020 because they just couldn't stand him. And if she runs against him, she could have a chance. I mean, people talk about Glenn Youngkin winning in Virginia, that he was able to kind of hold, uh, you know, Trump a little bit at bay. I don't think that is sustainable. Like, I don't think that Trump he didn't have allowed, a primary. He didn't have a primary. And I don't it was think, a convention. For, yeah. You know, and I, I just don't think Trump allows that. I mean, we went through this for four years. Like, will Trump you know, just kind of stand back because he wants to win. No, he always went with whatever fed his ego, to be frank. And he always said, you have to stand with me. He demanded total loyalty. And he did it regardless of whether it cost a Republican a seat or not. And he demanded credit. And as he well, demanded right? credit. You saw that yeah. just with the most recent election. Yes, he you know allowed some distance at that point, but it didn't take too long for a statement to come out. And also asking for credit for that electoral win. So if if the key to success going forward is going to be striking that balance of keeping the former president at bay while also trying to galvanize certain voters by appealing to certain issues that he would talk about, whether or not it's how racism is taught in schools, whether or not it's uh, pandemic restrictions. You know, it's it's there's a question over how that can be sustainable, because as you were saying, you're relying on a president who likes to claim credit for a lot yeah. of these things. And, and uh, here's uh, Chris Christie is trying to thread the needle. Uh, he's certainly not out there like Liz Cheney, but he's also not sucking up to Trump uh, like some of the others. Uh, here's what he had to say to Axios. I'm not going to get into a, a back and forth with Donald Trump, but what I will say is this. When I ran for re-election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden. True. <laughs> Accurate. Uh, Trump, of course, not pleased. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a new tack from Chris Christie because if you remember, he was previously saying things like at the Reagan Library a few weeks ago, like we've got to put the election deniers and the conspiracy theorists behind us, but he didn't say Trump's name. So this is a little bit of a new degree of aggressiveness from Christie, which I think is right. I mean, it's one of the things that actually I think Trump supporters like about Trump is that he is direct. He doesn't sort of just kind of beat around the bush and imply things. He just comes out and says exactly what he's thinking at any given moment, sometimes to a fault. But I think one problem that Christie's going to have with this he's a loser message Mm. is that if you come up toward 2024 and the Democrats are looking weak enough, that might not be persuasive to Republicans. Why not? Well, because it may not be. So you it would be useful for anti-Trump Republicans to be able to say he can't win. Right. But that might not be true. Oh, I see what you're saying. Mm. And then also CNN has some new reporting that people close to Trump are, are lobbying him to stay away from some races that could hurt Republican chances. A person uh, close to Trump told CNN, quote, there are absolutely places he shouldn't go. I wouldn't put him in Maryland, New Hampshire or Arizona. Now, Trump was whether somebody like convinced him to do it or we, they showed him some fights on TV for a month or whatever, you know, whatever, like boxing fights, uh, that whatever the reason he kept out of Virginia and much to Glenn Youngkin's uh, delight. Are they going to be able to keep him out of New Hampshire and Arizona? I think Trump hedges his bets as well, though. And I think he was very cautious about Virginia because it was a close race. 
And Youngkin really closed ground towards the very end. And if Trump went into Virginia and Youngkin lost, then he was going to lose a lot of steam. But the thing about Trump is that he doesn't actually have to show up in states for the Trumpisms to show up. And uh, Youngkin ran on Trump's policies. And I'm not talking about lowering taxes for uh, corporations. I'm talking about Trump put an executive order to end diversity training in his administration, and then Youngkin ran on an anti-critical race theory uh, ballot. Yeah, uh, Trump has been anti-abortion. Uh, Youngkin has been anti-abortion. And so some of it, it was like putting these little drops of like, I'm with this guy, but he doesn't need to show up so they can still create the All right. Thanks, all of you, for being here. Appreciate it. You can watch CNN's interview with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie on the new series Being with CNN's Dana Bash. That's Monday at 10 p.m. Eastern being Chris Christie. Travis Scott's attorney blasted Houston city officials over the, quote, finger pointing in the wake of the deadly Astroworld Festival. That story's next. In our national lead, a ninth victim, ninth, has died of injury she suffered when the crowd rushed the stage at the Travis Scott concert in Houston last Friday. Let's go to CNN's Rosa Flores live for us in Houston. And this 22-year-old woman, Rosa, she had been on a respirator? She's been fighting for her life, Jake. Her name is Barty Shahani, as you mentioned, 22 years of age. She was a student at Texas A&M University, and that day she was at the concert with her sister and her cousin. Now her family is devastated, her mom saying that she was selfless. She thought about everyone else before herself. Take a listen. What happened though? What happened to my blessing though? I... I want my baby back, you know? I won't be able to live without her. It's it's like, it's impossible. You know what I'm saying? I'm empty here. How will I live without her? I want my baby back, please. Give me my baby back, please. Her cousin, who was at the concert as well, blames producers, the venue, organizers. It's just awful. Um, And Rosa, the investigation has turned into something of an exercise in finger pointing about who should have been in charge of security uh, and, and crowd control. You know, let me paint the picture like this, Jake. So the Houston Police Department is the lead criminal investigation agency. The Houston, uh, excuse me, the Harris County judge is asking for an independent investigation. She's working to do that. Travis Scott's attorney is saying that all uh, these officials are just finger pointing and sending inconsistent messaging. The police chief here in Houston saying that it's actually the production and entertainment teams who actually have the power to stop the show. But, Jake, the police chief also said that there were more than 500 police officers that were at this venue, which begs the question, if you have all of these police officers there, did one of them think to perhaps raise this alert, the level outside of that production staff, for safety reasons? That's the question that I asked the police chief yesterday during a press conference, and he says that he, he, he doesn't have an answer to that. He's not going there. But it raises serious questions, Jake, because HPD is the investigating agency. And so does this mean that HPD is investigating itself? Most likely so, which at the end of the day, you wonder why perhaps the Harris County judge is asking for an independent investigation. That's probably why, too, Jake. Yeah. Rosa Flores, sad news. Thank you so much. 
They say they will help Afghans escape the country, but only for a price, a steep price, how desperate Afghans are being preyed upon. That's next. In our worldly today, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, says that as of last week, it had assisted in the departure of at least 377 U.S. citizens and 279 lawful permanent residents of the U.S., from Afghanistan since August 31st. Still, many Afghans, Afghans who desperately want to flee Taliban rule and Afghans who say their lives are at stake, they remain behind. As CNN's Alex Marquardt has discovered, Afghans trying to get out of the country face a black market full of promises, demands of exorbitant fees, and no guarantee of safety or success. These are the heavy steps of a young man trying to save his family. He's just 26 years old and lives in California. We can't show his face for the safety of his family in Afghanistan. I'm desperate. The the danger is imminent. Since the chaotic international withdrawal from Afghanistan, his parents, siblings and wife have been in hiding from the Taliban, who in the past, the young man says, have violently beaten his father, a doctor, and been angry with his mother, a women's rights activist who worked for the U.S. Taliban left announcement to my parents that they anybody who helped them find my parents or my family that ends up with their execution will gain a prize. They put a bounty on your family's head. Exactly. They, 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 this, is, this is really serious. They, they went to our house. They destroyed every, every single thing. Desperate, he turned to Facebook, finding people offering ways to get Afghans out of the country for a price. That person came up to me and told me, hey, you know what, you got to pay $10,000 per person in order to be evacuated then. Per person? Nine, ten people. It would be like $100,000, and I cannot provide $100,000 in cash. In a way, like if, even if I provide that money, there is no guarantee that they will be evacuated. According to Afghans and activists we've spoken with, desperate Afghans are now being exploited, like that young man, told that they can get them or their families out if they pay exorbitant, often impossible amounts. For only one family, $50,000. We Skyped with a father of three in Kabul who had just met with a man offering to get them on an evacuation flight list. You want to leave the country? If you say yes, they're going to say, okay, pay first. I said, how we can pay that much money right now? It's only business matters. People are making $100,000 per day. This man, whose identity we also need to hide, worked as a contractor for USAID. He's a special interest visa applicant for the U.S. The kind of Afghan citizen the Biden administration says they're working to evacuate. What is the U.S. doing that you know of to try to get you and your family out? Unfortunately, they are not doing now anything. Up to 31st, they said everything is closed and it's finished. We did not receive anything back from U.S. embassy or from any other organization. So he went online, where he found a man named Zachary Young, who is one of many advertising evacuations from Afghanistan, posting just this week, we can deliver. One LinkedIn user posted messages with Young, where Young said it would be $75,000 for a car to Pakistan. He told another it would be 14500 per person to get to the United Arab Emirates, or Albania, for another 4000 Prices well beyond the reach of most Afghans. We got Young's number and called, but he didn't pick up. 
In a text message, he told CNN that Afghans trying to leave are expected to have sponsors pay for them. If someone reaches out, we need to understand if they have a sponsor behind them to be able to pay evacuation costs, which Young says are highly volatile and based on environmental realities. Young repeatedly declined to break down the costs or say if he's making money. Back in California, the young Afghan-American tells us even though he can't pay, he's still pleading to get his family out. I have sent tons of texts asking these people, begging them to evacuate my family. If I don't be able to evacuate them within the next two weeks, I think I will lose them all. I think I will lose them all, my family. And just moments ago, that young man told me that the Taliban has now issued summons for his family in hiding, indicating his father believes that the Taliban really is after them. Now, the Biden administration continues to work on evacuating people. But as you can see there, there are just so many more Afghans who want to get out of the country. And that just drives prices higher and higher. In another message, that person offering those evacuations, Zachary Young, he wrote, availability is extremely limited and demand is high. Jake, he goes on to say, that's how economics works, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Mm. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much for that important report. Coming up, Xi Jinping's power play, the new move from the Chinese Communist Party and what it means next. Stay with us. In our world lead, trapped amid inhumane conditions and freezing temperatures, that is the plight for thousands of migrants right now on the border between Poland and Belarus. EU officials say Belarus is to blame, accusing its leaders of weaponizing human suffering in an attempt to destabilize Europe. And there are new fears that this conflict could escalate. Belarus's strongman is threatening to cut off gas supplies to Europe as Russia flies warplanes over the country in support. Of course, CNN's Fred Plykin joins us now live from Poland near the border with Belarus. Fred, what are you hearing about conditions there from some of these trapped migrants? Yeah, Jake, well, they're, they're absolutely appalling, those conditions. I can tell you from standing out here, it is indeed extremely cold out here. Temperatures around freezing, and also there's a slight drizzle. And if we look at the conditions in that camp where there are still around three to 4,000 people in there, uh, that's what the Polish authorities say, the people are basically camped out in the elements. There's some that have tents. However, there's others that have sort of taken makeshift logs and tried to make themselves some sort of shelter. Also, there are people trying to burn any sort of wood that they can find to try and somehow stay warm. Obviously, an untenable situation for a lot of those people. And then at the same time, of course, they're also caught in this conflict between Belarus and Poland and the European Union, where they can't go back into Belarus because the Belarusian authorities won't let them go back there. Obviously, they can't go into the European Union either because Poland has sealed the border and now has 15,000 troops here to make sure that no one can pass, Jake. And how are the U.S. and European Union planning to respond? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we're seeing now is that there's a lot more unity within the European Union, but then also between the U.S. and the European Union. You had the head of the European Commission visiting uh, the White House, and they were saying now that the White House is now planning new sanctions against Belarus, tougher sanctions against Alexander Lukashenko. And that's exactly what the European Union is saying as well. They want to expand sanctions against Lukashenko, possibly also sectoral sanctions to try and put pressure on him. And the other big thing that the European Union wants to do as well, it's, it's threatening the airlines that are flying people to Belarus and saying, look, you're going to get blacklisted and not be able to fly into the European Union anymore if you continue to fly people to Belarus that are then being brought to the border 
to be sent over into the European Union. So they're trying to show more of a unified response. But of course, one of the things that you've mentioned is absolutely correct. So far, it doesn't seem as though Alexander Lukashenko is budging. He praised Vladimir Putin, of course, his biggest backer for flying those bombers uh, over Belarusian territory, and then today threatened to cut off gas supplies to Europe. So really, it's still a very difficult situation, but we certainly can see that the European Union has now decided it's going to remain tough And it certainly says it's not going to budge. In fact, the polls say they could send a lot more troops here to the border. They're not going to let anyone through, Jake. All right. Fred Fleitkin live in Poland near the border with Belarus. Thank you so much. Also in our world lead, a history-making announcement from the Chinese Communist Party on its 100th anniversary. President Xi Jinping is putting his personal imprint on China and rewriting the party's historical record in a move that will likely allow him to extend his iron grip on power for another five years, possibly for life, he is just the third communist leader to pass a resolution like this, which observers say aims to establish Xi as an equal to party founder and former Chinese leader Mao Zedong. CNN's David Culver joins us now live from Shanghai, China. David, how has President Xi been able to cement his hold on power for so long? Jake, this has been a methodical consolidation of control, a crumbling of collective leadership. As you mentioned, This resolution is historical. It puts him all the way up with Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, puts him as a paramount leader here in China, and it really sets him up as the undisputed supreme ruler for years to come. Now, this goes back to when he took power in 2012. It was then he started to launch this anti-corruption campaign, which simultaneously eliminated any political rivals. Then in 2016, puts himself as the core leader of the party, the party, of course, the center of this entire country. 2018, the removal of presidential term limits, and that essentially paved the path for what we're seeing right now, Jake, and that is this maintaining of control for what seems to be years to come. And David, sources tell CNN that the highly anticipated virtual summit between U.S. President Biden and Chinese President Xi is expected to take place on Monday. What do we expect the two leaders to discuss? I've talked to a lot of sources who are closely connected to the planning of this virtual meeting, and it's billed just as that, a meeting. So not so much a summit that maybe would last multiple days. This is going to be a one-day thing as far as what we're hearing for now. And really the focus is going to be, first and foremost, lower the temperature. We've seen rising tensions between these two countries, certainly in the South China Sea, certainly with regards to Taiwan. In fact, there are near daily incursions just southeast of here off the coast with Chinese fighters and bombers going over into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. China says that's part of their sovereign territory. Of course, the U.S. trying to maintain the self-governing island and and its democracy and sustain that for years to come. It's a lot of back and forth that likely will come up in this meeting. However, human rights, of course, going to be huge as well. One thing we are hearing, though, Jake, is that perhaps, this according to some reports, There will be an invitation from Xi to Biden to attend the Beijing Olympics. Of course, that likely is not going to go over well and certainly wouldn't be received. But one thing diplomats have told me is that the discussion has been for many months now to bring President Biden here, certainly right after the Olympics, because the day after the Olympics in Beijing, Jake, is the 50th anniversary of the first presidential visit, the Nixon visit in 1972. Jake. All right, David Culver in Shanghai. Thanks so much. A car company you've probably never heard of is now worth more than Ford and General Motors combined. That's next. In our money lead, Tesla CEO Elon Musk might need to start looking in his rearview mirror. There's new competition moving up fast. Electric car company 
Rivian ended its first day of trading valued at almost $86 billion after one of the largest public IPO offerings in years. That valuation making the company already worth billions more than either General Motors or Ford, even though the company's only delivered just over 150 vehicles as of last month. Rivian is also getting help from Musk's primary competitor for the title of world's richest man. Under Jeff Bezos, Amazon took a stake in Rivian and committed to buying 100,000 of its vehicles while he and the first passengers aboard his Blue Origin spacecraft, we should note, rode in Rivian vehicles to the launch site. Buckle up, the electric car wars are just heating up. And on this Veterans Day, you can give back by helping our severely wounded veterans and their families. Please check out their Homes for Our Troops 5th Annual Veterans Day Celebrity Auction. Lots of great items up for auction on eBay, including the late Senator John McCain's favorite Navy baseball cap donated by his widow, Ambassador Cindy McCain, or tickets to a show and a meet-and-greet with comedian Mike Birbiglia, or a Zoom call with CNN's own Caitlin Collins, or Pamela Brown, or Annika Brera, or Allison Camerata, or Aaron Burnett, and many, many more. You can find all the items at ebay.com HFOT, Homes for Our Troops, bidding and Sunday. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.